0: Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from The Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later in the podcast, I'll be talking to Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent, and Michael Johnson, our Middle East analyst, about the story that has been dominating international headlines in recent days, the disappearance of the dissident Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was allegedly murdered while in Saudi Arabia's consulate in Istanbul on October 2nd. Just how much damage has the controversy done to relations between Saudi Arabia and its Western allies? And what might the long-term consequences be? They are a couple of the questions I'll be exploring with Suzanne and Michael. But we're going to start this week with a story a little closer to home, and that's last Sunday's state election in Bavaria. And speaking of lasting damage and long-term consequences, the result in this case threatens to further destabilise Germany's already wobbly coalition government. And there may be further trouble ahead for Chancellor Angela Merkel, here in studio to tell us more about this is our Berlin correspondent, Derek Scully. Um, before we get on to the implications for Angela Merkel and her government in, in Berlin, could you
1: give us a, a summary of what happened in Bavaria at the weekend? Why was the result such a, a shock to the political system? It was such a shock because the CSU basically is Bavaria. For the post-war period, the CSU has been almost consistently in power, definitely since uh, 1957. Uh, the CSU has managed to merge itself with Bavarian identity. Uh, and this is the first time voters have said, actually, no, we're Bavarian and you're not doing a good job. We think you're arrogant through power. Uh, We think you need a coalition partner. Uh, And they withdrew 10% of their support dropped. Uh, And uh, they're still in the 30s, which is for most parties would be quite a a satisfactory election result. But um, they're now going to probably have to work with a small regional party called the Free Voters. Um, And this year, you have gotten uh, quite a a rude awakening because on paper, Bavaria is down south in Germany. It's very prosperous. It has a very strong economy lots of the big companies like Siemens work there it has low unemployment but voters just feel you're not dealing with serious problems such as a massive massive housing crisis uh, and uh, the arrogance of power uh, gets to all parties eventually so this really was a slap for them and also dissatisfaction with uh, Angela Merkel's Grand Coalition in Berlin Yeah and
0: just I suppose direct to remind people who don't follow the story closely the CSU is the Christian Social Union and it's a sister party to Angela Merkel's CDU which, uh, and, and they're both part of the,
1: the Grand Coalition in Berlin. Exactly. The Grand Coalition has three parties. Merkel's party, the Christian Democrats, CDU. Uh, There's also a small centre-left party, uh, the Social Democrats. And the CSU, this Bavarian party, um, that's the party that was up for election in this state election. I I would call the CDU and the CSU, they're almost like stepsisters. Uh, Technically, they're related, but uh, often they make life awkward for each other. And uh, we've seen that before the election. There's been a lot of uh, disruption between the two, a lot of tension. And we're probably going to see more of that uh, in, in the weeks and months to come.
0: And what kind of support levels would the CSU normally get in a Bavaria election? You say they're in the 30s this time, which for, sounds healthy enough, I suppose, in, in normal circumstances, but they would normally expect to get what?
1: This, well, this is one of Europe's last parties that had absolute majorities. Uh, the last election, if I remember rightly, was about 48%. So they basically are Bavaria. Um, and to, to drop down below 40 at uh, the drop 10 points, uh, it's just a huge blow for them because they they attached themselves to Bavarian identity and they ended up believing it themselves that we are Bavaria, Bavaria is us. Um, so to drop down below 40, uh, to have a three there is a huge uh, humiliation for the party, for its pride. Uh, it has a huge, some people would say has a bit a bit too much confidence, but it also has a some kind of an inferiority complex as well. They constantly want to be reminded of how great they are. Uh, and now they've been reminded that they're not so great, they're not so strong. They've landed with a bump and people would say this is just a political norm- normalisation process so perhaps it would be good for the party and the world is changing politics is changing Uh, mainstream parties are under attack And, and the CSU perhaps one of the last parties in Europe is now feeling this And if the CSU went down who went up? That's a very interesting one. Um, The big winner of this was the Green Party. The Green Party uh, got uh, 17, 18%. The Green Party in Bavaria has never really been a a force to be reckoned with before. Um, But they've become not just an ecological party, but they're calling themselves the Party of Sustainability, the party who will preserve our beautiful Bavaria. The Bavarians are obsessed with their, their nature. They believe it's the most, you know, God's own country. And the Greens somehow managed to steal this away from the CSU and say, actually, we want to preserve uh, our wonderful Heimat or homeland. Uh, and they're saying look, we're, 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 we're building out of town developments there's half of our our state is disappearing beneath concrete uh, there's no sustainable politics going on we are the party of sustainability uh, and um, they have uh, they've managed to convince enough people of that so that's where one gr- group of votes went but most of the votes uh, disappeared uh, to the, so the CSU would be a centre-right party and uh, the vote split half between this uh, small group called the Free Voters they got 10% they may form a coalition partner they make a coalition government with uh, the government They uh, and then the other group is the uh, the far-right alternative for Deutschland, the AFD they have been they've been dining out on the refugee crisis from 2015, 2016 and in some states they've been up to almost 20% but what we saw interesting in Bavaria they got only in quotation marks only 10% it's enough to get them into the parliament for the first time but um, there is some talk that perhaps with the migration crisis uh, uh, dwindling in people's consciousness they're more worried about their car uh, diesel bans or how to find somewhere to live that they can afford uh, that the AFD is somehow dwindling there so um, but that's where the CSU vote went, went to uh, went to the Greens uh, that was sort of the more urban, liberal conservatives who were horrified by a hardline migration policy that the CSU were taking. And then there's the centre-right, traditional conservative CSU voters. They split, half went to the far-right, half went to uh, to this small uh, regional party.
0: And there's been a lot of concern, of course, in Germany and beyond Germany about the rise of the AFD and they have seats in the in the. Bundestag as well, the, the Federal Parliament in Berlin. Um, do people think this result suggests that perhaps they've peaked now, the party is flatlined somehow?
1: Perhaps. Uh, as I said, the migration crisis, when you actually look at the voter analysis, people aren't as concerned about it as before. This was a big issue back in 2015, because particularly in Bavaria, because all the people were arriving into the country through Bavaria. You might remember the images from Munich main train station, people literally walking into the country from Hungary and far beyond. Um, and there was a fear, or there was a concern that uh, there in Bavaria that they'd been left in the lurch and that Merkel's liberal policies decided from Berlin were not really working here on the ground in Bavaria. But really in the poll analysis that had dwindled. So on the one hand you could say um, this was the, the calling card for the AFD. This was the This was what they used to ram their way into German politics uh, after the Euro crisis dwindled. On the other hand, um, the AFD in Bavaria is really the sort of the more conservative, the tweedy end of the party. Uh, It doesn't really have much truck with the anti-immigrant, xenophobic, racist remarks that you would see, for instance, in the AFD in East Germany. So it could be that uh, some people in the party will say, well, being tweedy and civilized and sort of csu in its like, in its policies, um, didn't work in Bavaria. So the lesson is we need to be more hardcore. We need to be more um, anti-Islam, anti-foreigner. That that seems to be the one that works. So there is a battle uh, for control of the AFD. It'll be interesting to see which side believes this, after the Bavarian election, um, that that they believe that they are in the ascendant. So um, you were starting to say there a moment ago, the CSU will now...
0: Start coalition talks or has with this uh, other centre right party, the Free Voters, having been accustomed to, to having enough support to govern on their own. Wh- what explains the fall in support for the CSU? What actually happened?
1: Um, many things. The CSU has this a um, th- rule in Germany, you're not supposed to, as a centre-right party, don't ever allow another party occupy ground further right of you. Uh, and that's worked for decades. And the CSU would always be slightly more bolshy than the CDU. They'd always be, you know, Bavaria first, uh, long before Donald Trump came up with anything like that. They were always, uh, as, as an individual party, they were able to get sweetheart deals for Bavaria uh, far beyond their significance in national terms um, So, but what's happened is the AFD came along partly because of Angela Merkel's migration policies and the CSU didn't know how do we deal with this so they tried to ignore them, that was step one then they realised that wasn't working, then they tried to uh, imitate the AFD in the election campaign, you will remember we talked about this here in the summer, the migration turbulence and they were talking about asylum tourists and we need to stop immigration into Germany, there wasn't really the same level of immigration anyway but they Decided this sounded good. This sounded tough. We need to take on the AfD by being even tougher uh, on on immigration. Some would say borderline racist. That really didn't go down well with voters. People would, even even hardline conservatives in in Bavaria who didn't like Merkel and didn't like her refugee policy. When they hear things like asylum tourists, they say, "Hang on, I am I am a I am a, a a Catholic farmer. I will never treat somebody like call them a, a, an asylum tourist." So that blew up in their face. So that was the second stage, and then. The third Third stage, quite late in the day in the uh, in the election, they decided right we have to we have to we have to attack the AFD. So they went from ignore to imitate to attack. Uh, and they pretty much ignored, annoyed everybody. Um, so uh, people who were incensed disappeared to the Greens. People who felt that their Christian values were being undermined by such talk disappeared to the free voters. And people thought, who thought the CSU isn't still isn't being tough enough on immigration, they went away to the AFD. So confusion. And they also have a bizarre situation. They have a party leader who is in Berlin. He's Merkel's interior minister. He was doing his own thing in migration. But the... Um, the uh, the, the state yeah that's Josehofer. and the state premier is another guy uh, Marco Sordo so he's in Bavaria doing his own thing so too many cooks spoiling the broth confused strategy how to deal with a, a far right party and again just fatigue and um, the CSU really have started to believe their own publicity that they're the only people who understand Bavaria they're the only people they have done extraordinary things for the state but voters as we know can often be very ungrateful people so from a CSU perspective they've done everything right and voters are are just Punishing them for no good reason. But if you ask voters, they're just really tired of CSU arrogance.
0: Now, what has all this got to do with Angela Merkel in Berlin? Why is it more than a, a localised problem for the CSU?
1: Well, Bavaria is always, it's one of the big German states uh, from, from geographical, it's, it's actually the largest state. It's not the largest state population-wise, but 9 million people voted. Uh, Germany has a population of 82. So that's quite a good referendum on where we see things going. And there are specifics about Bavaria, but generally, this you could look at this as an unhappiness with, um, with Angela Merkel's government because her and her Bavarian allies have been basically squabbling since they got back into power just over six months ago and um, they uh, really have not been giving a very good impression of a government that's working on constructive policies Uh, so We're not quite sure how stable the CSU will be in the next while. They've put off any leadership questions for now. They'll say let's form a government first and we'll talk about heads and rolling later on. Um, But we have in two weeks time Angela Merkel's own party, the CDU. They face their own state election in Hesse. That's where Frankfurt is, the financial capital. Uh, And it's also a very big state, very important state, very prosperous state. And Merkel's party has had that state for almost 20 years. Uh, But uh, it doesn't look like, it doesn't look very good for them at the moment. They're down 10 points on the last time around uh, they have interestingly enough they have a coalition there with the Green Party and the Green Party has gained like in Bavaria so if this if Merkel's party stays in power in two weeks time in this state called Hesse it will probably be, be not because of their own performance their own performance has slid uh, drastically but because the Greens have gained again so um, a bad performance in this state of Hesse will also reflect badly on Merkel and I think then uh, the, the knives will be out in some description until now people are complaining but not actually. I think after that, between then and the party conference in Hamburg at the start of December, we might start to see um, people saying, well, maybe you'd like to go before we feel we have to push you. The CDU tends not to sort of be a push party against its own leader, but maybe Merkel will read the runes and decide in December, I will continue on as chancellor, but I won't stay on as party leader. She's always said, I want that. I want. I believe that's the most stable way to go. But if we have two state election disasters in a row, um, certain uh, energies could be released, and perhaps you won't be able to contain them as she has in the past. Is
0: there a sense here in which the, the tide is turned against Angela Merkel? You, you have an op piece in the Irish Times today and on, on irishtimes.com, and you quote a German columnist who joked that every problem, be it a failure to get a doctor's appointment or a delivery to arrive the response now to every problem is Merkel must go
1: Yes uh, I mean this started when the with the AFD with the far right party but even in her own party now people are just saying enough is enough she's an extraordinary woman she got Germany through several crises uh, in, in, over the last years but after 13 years perhaps she's just losing there's been slips recently un- untypical for her there's been slips here and slips there and a sense that perhaps just like everyone her time has come What's, what has been significant uh, after the Bevere in elections, a number of senior party colleagues who've come out to profess solidarity for her, that she's a wonderful leader and we're looking forward to her being re-elected leader in December. And uh, it's a bit like football, you know, when you hear people professing full confidence in somebody, that usually is the first sign. So we'll see if that applies to the CDU. Um, but definitely Merkel knows um, she is no longer unquestioned, the unquestioned leader she used to be. And I think what's starting to see is the tide is going out and people are starting to realise that the, the peer that is the CDU, the, the stilts are perhaps not as stable as they could be they've been very good at staying in power but many people have said to me we're not actually sure what the cdu stays stands for apart from staying in power what is our profile and if voters don't know what our profile is why should they be voting for Are a centrist party? Are we a liberal party? Are we actually kind of a, a closet social democrat party? That's what some people would say, and perhaps uh, Merkel is not the person to um, redefine or uh, retool or put the, the refresh the CDU uh, political DNA. And perhaps there has to be a change of there has to be a change of uh, generation, a change of leader. Whether or not the CDU will do it of their own accord, or Merkel will open the door herself, um, that's what we're going to see between now and December. So. Air- December, the CDU conference. That might be the next uh, pivotal moment in the story. Exactly. December 7th, Hamburg, get your tickets now. There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather, the traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good, because there's something you'll always be able to control, your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution, giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best-run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk slash control.
0: Now to that story about the disappearance of the dissident Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was last seen when entering the Saudi consulate in Istanbul on October 2nd, while his Turkish fiancé waited outside. No official explanation has been offered for his disappearance, but Turkish sources have been widely quoted in the media as saying they believe he was murdered inside the consulate and his body was dismembered before being removed. Saudi Arabia has denied the story, but there are reports that it is preparing to admit that Khashoggi was indeed killed inside the consulate during an interrogation that went wrong. For more on this story and the fallout, I'm joined on the line by Suzanne Lynch, our Washington correspondent, and from Nicosia by our Middle East analyst, Michael Johnson. Suzanne, I'll go to you first. One gets the impression that this controversy has put the White House into panic mode as it tries to formulate a response. Is that fair comment?
2: Yes, I think here in Washington, the the news cycle changes so quickly. And yet this story is, is a story that has stuck um, it began to emerge as as a p- potential crisis for the trump administration. um on around October the fourth, that was two days after the disappearance of uh, Koshagi because uh, the Washington Post printed a blank white, uh, piece where his column was supposed to appear. And I think the Washington Post really succeeded in kind of upping the profile about this disappeared journalist or resident of the United States living here in Virginia. Um, and despite all the, the tumult of news that was happening here, and the story refused to go away. Donald Trump was asked about it last week. And from the beginning, we've seen a kind of an equivocation, really, from the U.S. president. He evidently did not want to get involved, but has now felt the need to get involved. And now America really is in the midst of a a politically explosive diplomatic crisis uh, with Saudi Arabia.
0: Now, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, has been dispatched by Trump to Riyadh today, ostensibly to, to find out what happened. But what would you say is the real purpose of this mission? What has Pompeo been delegated to do?
2: Well, yes, Donald Trump announced that he was sending Mike Pompeo to meet King Salman in Saudi Arabia today, and that meeting is just finished. Um, But at the same time as he announced that, Donald Trump also said in the same breath, literally, that... He that it could be rogue killers that were uh, responsible for this killing, in other words, not the Saudi regime. Um, so we don't know what's happened in that uh, conversation between the two men. Um, there was a statement out, um, a very brief statement, really, from the, uh, the U.S. State Department uh, that said that they had discussed uh, the need for a timely, transparent investigation into the disappearance, but also that they discussed a number of regional bilateral issues And that, you know, the secretary thanked the king for Saudi Arabia's strong partnership with the United States. So we see here the difficult balance that the Trump administration is trying to strike here. Saudi Arabia is an ally, which the Trump administration has cultivated since the election of Donald Trump as president. It's trying to keep that on board at the same time, respond to the international outcry over the disappearance of uh, Mr Khashoggi.
0: And speaking of that balance, there was something about Trump's initial response that, that struck me when he he said, oh, this is a terrible thing. But he immediately went on to talk about the U.S. having, he said, $110 billion in arms sales to Saudi Arabia, and they couldn't afford to put that at risk. Now, it seemed very Mm -hmm. cynical, but in in some ways, perhaps he he was being more honest maybe than previous presidents who might not have said such a thing so explicitly, but in actual fact, that that would be the same policy, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, there is an argument, I suppose, that countries around the world, United States, countries, our own country, European countries, for example, overlook human rights abuses in countries like China um, and economic concerns, sometimes Trump, um, political concerns, if you like. Um, But I suppose what's different about Donald Trump is that he's saying that so explicitly. Um, And and we do have to recognise that there has been a distinct shift under the Trump administration to engage with Saudi Arabia in the Middle East. Uh, The Obama administration kept the Saudis at arm's length. This has been a real change, a shift in position. Uh, by the Trump administration. And it's hugely significant that Donald Trump's first trip abroad when President was to to Saudi Arabia, where he was greeted with much pomp and ceremony. I mean, this made a real statement. Um, So I suppose this is now a test for the Trump administration. And it's all, particularly in the context of the fact that Donald Trump has shown a willingness to engage with autocratic regimes that other people haven't, like North Korea, for example, um, in the Philippines, for example, Um, And this is another example to his critics of how he's prepared to overlook uh, concerns about human rights, about repression, uh, in order to uh, advance strategic aims in certain areas of the world.
0: Now, he might not have a... entirely a free hand um, in in this regard because Congress also has a role, doesn't it? And there's some pressure coming from Congress too. Can can you tell us about that? Mm,
2: I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of this, that there has been a cleavage, if you like, between Donald Trump and members of his own party in Congress about this issue. And um, Republican and Democratic members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee last week were briefed on this issue. They, they've seen intelligence on this issue. And uh, members of that committee, including Republicans, as I said, came out last week and said strongly that they essentially believe the Turkish line, that this, that there's some Saudi involvement in the disappearance uh, of Mr Kashagi. So um, that immediately set and set train a uh, pressure on, on Donald Trump to respond to this. Uh, at the weekend, Senator Marco Rubio, for example, the Florida Republican, he came out very, very strongly uh, against Saudi Arabia, essentially saying uh, that this needed to be looked into and that Congress was prepared to act if needed. That would probably involve sanctions on Saudi Arabia. And also, he suggested that they would, uh, the Republicans in Congress that he represented, would be prepared to consider halting this this much touted 110 billion arms deal, which by the way, has not come to fruition yet, um, but which was agreed last year between the two countries. So I think this is why Donald Trump really does have to confront this because of this growing calls from within his own party in Congress to, to try and get to the bottom of this controversy.
0: Michael, you wrote an interesting piece for us a couple of days ago in which you suggested we shouldn't be too surprised at Saudi Arabia's actions here, unproven as they are as, as we speak. If Khashoggi was murdered at the behest of the Saudi regime, this wouldn't be the first time such a thing had happened.
3: Um, no. So far, uh, the Saudi regime has basically uh, kidnapped people and taken them back to Saudi Arabia. It hasn't uh, killed people. Um, in Saudi Arabia, of course, it has executed many people. This year, 100 people have been ex- executed so far. But it has uh, um, captured and renditioned to Saudi Arabia at least three princes plus a number of commoners uh, who have been critical of the government, who are um, activists uh, demanding certain kind of reforms. And um, inside Saudi Arabia also, a large number of opponents of the regime have been arrested recently, and and this includes 12 women who were in the female drive uh, uh, campaign. And uh, these people have been held um, in prison, and there is one woman who is threatened with execution. And this woman is a, is living in the Shia eastern province and has been demanding equal treatment from the Sunni Saudi government.
0: And Michael, given that rather dark track record, why do you think this particular story has taken off the way it has? Is it the fact that this happened on foreign soil and, and, and also that, that Khashoggi himself was living in the United States and, um, and and was writing for the Washington Post? Are they the kind of differentiating factors?
3: I think there are many factors in this. Um, One is, of course, that he was living in the United States and writing for the Washington Post. Uh, There is the fact that he was kidnapped, or, well, he was disappeared in Istanbul and presumably murdered. As I said before, uh, the other people who have been abducted have not been murdered as well. And there is a story also in the fact that Khashoggi has been, since the 70s, a supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood. And he was uh, marrying a Turkish lady and basing himself, at least part of the time, in uh, Turkey, which is also a supporter of the Muslim Brotherhood. And uh,
0: And the Saudi regime fears the Muslim Brotherhood, isn't that right?
3: Yes, the Saudi regime uh, considers the Muslim Brotherhood a major competitor, and so, uh, and th- this has been the case for some years. Originally, the Saudi regime supported the Muslim Brotherhood and received many Muslim Brothers who were being exiled by their own countries. But as I said, they received, they have decided that they are competitors rather than um, allies. And the other thing is that Khashoggi had uh, worked for Qatar as well. And Qatar is another rival of Saudi Arabia in the region. And um, as far as Qatar is concerned, it, it absolutely infuriates the Saudis that it has managed to overcome its attempt to blockade this small, wealthy country.
0: Michael, this story has put a lot of focus on the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman or MBS, as he sometimes referred to, and he emerged as the heir apparent to the Saudi throne last year. He's only 33. He initially presented himself as a reformer who clamped down on the religious police, lifted the ban on women driving and so on. But in, in other ways, he's shown himself to have an even more authoritarian streak than, than the rulers who've gone before him. Is he personally damaged by this saga?
3: I think so. Um He has damaged himself, actually, uh, in many ways since he uh, rose to power in 2015 when he was the defense minister by launching this war in Yemen, which is extremely unpopular in the region. And it is a, a war which is getting more and more devastating day after day, and the people of Yemen are now facing famine. And many of the commentators who are writing for newspapers, not in the Arab world, but elsewhere, have made the point that a great fuss is being made over the Saudi journalist, um, perhaps murdered in Istanbul. And nothing is said about the hundreds of Yemenis who are dying every month in in Saudi airstrikes.
0: And and Michael, where does the real power lie now in the Saudi royal court? I mean, could King Salman, who installed the crown prince last year in the first place. Could he remove him if he wanted to? Or does MBS really hold... Is he the ultimate source of power now in Saudi Arabia?
3: Well, the king is the ultimate source of power. And when he has asserted himself, he has countered uh, uh, initiatives by the crown prince. Uh, He has done this on the issue of um, raising taxes on the population. And he has also done this over Jerusalem when... uh, the crown prince was uh, trying to soft pedal the Israeli, uh, the American um, recognition of Israel's uh, 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 over Jerusalem. And um, the thing is, he he also undermined his own position by arresting hundreds of Saudi princes and businessmen and former ministers and former officials last November, and imprisoning them in a luxury hotel and um, making them hand over their assets, which he c- claimed that were, were um, secured by corrupt means. Now, Saudi Arabia's government has run on corrupt means for generations. So everybody in Saudi Arabia who has a huge amount of wealth, which and there are many, including the crown prince and the king, Uh, has benefited from corrupt uh, practices.
0: But I suppose I'm wondering, Michael, is it conceivable that the king could remove him at this stage?
3: I think it would be difficult. The king is... He is the king's favorite son. He is the son of the king's third wife, uh, who apparently was also a favorite of the king. And um, he is in a position where he may have to be removed by other members of the family, not the king. The king's uh, mental capacity is a bit feeble at the moment, as far as reports go, and he cannot digest exactly what's going on, and this is why things have come to this stage. There is a lot of criticism, which is muted in Saudi Arabia, because people are afraid Um, So many arrests have been taking place that they have um, actually uh, stomped on any kind of criticism. And the, the crown prince, he says he is a reformist, but he's not a political reformer. He's an economic reformer, and he wants to bring the young generation into the economy by finding them jobs and giving them reasonable salaries and so on. But the problem is he will have to also match that with some kind of political reforms, which he t- doesn't want to do.
0: Just finally for you, Michael, and I'll go back to Suzanne. Uh, I, I want to ask him maybe about Jared Kushner's relationship with, with the crown prince. But just um, the, Turkey's role here is, is interesting, isn't it? I mean, Turkey and Saudi Arabia aren't the best of friends, but I think they're not, they're not avowed enemies either. How, how would you characterize that relationship?
3: It's a strained relationship because Turkey has backed Qatar in this squabble that uh, is with Saudi Arabia, which was started by the crown prince. Uh, And the problem is that Turkey not only backs Qatar um, politically, but militarily by deploying some soldiers in Qatar. And Qatar is, of course, a major base for the Americans as well. So everybody is kind of caught up in this uh, mess And Qatar and Turkey have also had similar goals in Syria. Um, And those goals um, have been or were shared by the Saudis for some time. But the Saudis have tried to back out of the Syrian mess. And they have stopped funding some of the groups that they used to fund. But the Qataris and the Turks still continue to back uh, both jihadi groups and other groups.
0: And there is one view, Michael. I'd be interested in your opinion on it. That Turkey might use this opportunity to extract some leverage or some concessions from Saudi Arabia. In other words, in return for accepting a Saudi explanation about what happened here, it, it could actually, you know, use the situation to its advantage.
3: Well, Turkey has um, offered to uh, launch, a, uh, you know, a coordinated investigation of this business of uh, Khashoggi. Um, And the Saudis have said, yes, this is fine. And then they haven't cooperated. And uh, the Turks are now getting frustrated for one thing. The Saudis promised more than a week ago that Turkish investigators could go into the consulate and do a forensic investigation. Well, they didn't get in until late yesterday, and they spent nine hours inside the consulate. And ahead of their visit, the um uh, Saudis brought in some cleaners with strong um, materials to clean up whatever residue might have been left by the interrogation of Mr. Khashoggi. And uh, also Erdogan, now the Turkish president, is complaining that walls have been painted over and other um, materials have been moved from the consulate. Now, if the Turks were really serious or had been really serious about making an investigation of what went on in the consulate, and they had done this from the beginning, from, let us say, the 4th or the 5th of October, they would have placed police around the consulate and stopped any kind of interference with what, with the scene of uh, Khashoggi's uh, interrogation or demise.
0: OK, Suzanne, just to come picking up again on the conversation I had there with Michael about the, the crown prince, Donald Trump, as we know, likes these so-called strong leaders. And I think Jared Kushner is known to have particularly built up a good personal relationship with Mohammed bin Salman. They're similar in age yeah. and so yeah. on. So if he, if he has been damaged, if MBS, as he's known, has been damaged, that in turn has consequences, doesn't it, for the U.S.-Saudi relationship?
2: Yes, it does. And um, Jared Kushner is, is a key person in, in this relationship. Um, he was given the portfolio of, of the Middle East, essentially, by President Trump shortly after his election. And very early on, he saw uh, Saudi as a potential partner in, in, in his dealings on the, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He felt that if they could come on board, progress could be made. And also as a kind of a bulwark against Iran. Um, and he did strike up uh, a, a friendship with um Mohammed bin Salman, uh, they they spoke by phone, by email in the early days before um, the, his visits there. And then uh, Jared Kushner visited Riyadh, I think, three times last year. And um, the reports of the two men sitting up until the early hours talking and discussing things. Uh, Jared Kushner was on the phone to him last week when this crisis really erupted. Um, and he has been playing a huge role in facilitating this dialogue between uh, Washington and Riyadh. Um, Also, just to note, uh, MBS's younger brother, one of his younger brothers, uh, Prince Khalid, has been the Saudi ambassador to the United States living here in Washington. But there are now reports that he had returned to Saudi Arabia and will not be returning. Um, And he, uh, for example, knew Jared Kushner quite well, accompanied him on his trip to the Middle East, etc. So I think this has seriously uh, damaged Jared Kushner's standing. He was one of the driving forces behind this policy of engagement with Saudi Arabia. And I think this is now leaving questions uh, above uh, above him uh, about his judgment on that.
0: Okay, well, this is a story that has some way to run. And, and Suzanne in Washington and, and Michael and Nicosia, you'll be continuing to report on it and, and analyse it for the Irish Times. Thanks a lot for that today. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.